Hello, and welcome to Ben Yo Chats. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. How can you be a poet and a sustainable hedge fund manager? On this episode, I speak to Jason Mitchell. We talk about his poetry, his journey through sustainability and asset management, and he gives his views on a range of topical subjects such as carbon tax, divestment strategies, sustainable finance regulation, carbon offsets, and stakeholder capitalism. These are personal views only, and there is no organizational endorsement or any investment advice to be taken in this educational conversation. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. Thank you. Be well. Hey, everyone. I'm super excited to be speaking to Jason Mitchell. Jason is co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. Um, He was a hedge fund manager and he is a poet. He's a deep thinker on all things sustainable and finance, and he hosts a brilliant podcast himself, A Sustainable Future, which you should check out. Jason, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this. It's great to see you, Ben. Great to see you. So you've been on a small boat in the middle of the sea, witnessing refugees in the Mediterranean, and you've produced poetry and photography on the experience. You bore witness, and I think I quote, rescued by our boat one morning, the man asked me, is it true what they tell us, the traffickers, about these waters, that the sea has no bottom? I told him, no, there is indeed a floor half a mile or more below us, and Europe is a much farther, more difficult journey than the traffickers promised you. What did the experience teach you and what should we know more about the situation? Yeah, so, so you're referring to my experience on a 26 meter uh, decommissioned German lifeboat um, that was designed for the North, the Barents Sea. Uh, and uh, I and a group of six, seven other Germans uh, were on it for several weeks off the coast of Libya in late 2016. Uh, um, during the absolute height of the uh, migrant crisis. I, you know, it, it was interesting. I mean, I, I think it's actually worth just giving a little bit of backstory to that because I, I think, um, and, and I suspect probably like you, sort of my interests were, they tended to be guided by climate, right? I mean, climate, particularly in sustainable finance, is, is just such a powerful issue. And, and certainly now with, with net zero and in, in sort of the mass media, uh, um, you know, into COP26, you know, the, the prevalent issue. I think what was interesting for me was coming out of COP21 um, uh, in Paris in 20, uh, at the end of 2015, and uh, feeling pretty ebullient about, you know, the state of the world, about, you know, kind of what the Paris Accord meant. Um, I, I think coming out of that, I had a friend um, who was doing some work at an NGO in w- w- around the Calais um, and Dunkirk kind of migrant crisis in, in, in France. And he was just doing kind of a quick run from London out there with, with secondhand clothes. And I said that I would join. Um, and so we did the trip, dropped off the clothes, and I ended up staying for several weeks. And it kind of blew me away that you know, uh, uh, climate 
and, and you know, justifiably it, because of the existential risk of, of climate change, but it, it's sort of, it, it's the predominant theme that kind of captures everything. But, you know, uh, there, there, there are these other crises, you know, in this case, this migrant crisis that was, you know, less than 300 miles away from Paris, you know, and London happening in Western Europe, um, reflecting obviously the, the, the crisis in Syria and the persistent migrant flows from West um, and Central Africa. Um, and, and so for me, it was kind of fascinating to have to switch lenses from climate to this kind of humanitarian crisis. And I think from there after, I just, I, I found it kind of fascinating and, and overlooked in a relative sense. And so I ended up dedicating a good part of that year um, working in, in, in Calais, then working in Lesbos with uh, an NGO that worked alongside uh, 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 Medicine Sans Frontieres, um, and, and then ultimately hooking up with these German NGOs and working off the coast of Libya. Um, just, yeah, does that answer your question? Yes. I guess it puts a really human face onto climate crisis yeah. and uh, everything about that. Did it, I guess, was the experience inform your thinking around sustainability and the messages that we need to, to talk about? Or you were kind of hinting about it, that actually there is this climate thing and it's all pervasive, but there are, there are many crises kind of right there mm -hmm. and these people, and it was kind of interesting that this is a, it's intersectional. So there, there's this crisis happening, but your, your, your work, your your poetry and your photography seem yeah. to be so powerful out of it. I couldn't help but think that this was kind of, uh, you know, something other in terms of your own journey. Yeah. No, no, you, you're right, actually, on that point, because I, I think it was it was interesting to kind of think about this crisis outside of the lens of finance. Uh, that said, I still think that you can make some pretty powerful linkages about what this crisis, what the implications were on stability, the political stability, and even the financial stability of, of, of areas, you know, in, in by that, I mean, you know, look at to what degree the, the, uh, the migrant crisis, think about how that has shaped the political landscape, um, and the move far right within Germany, and certainly in Italy, um, following, you know, in, in 2017 and 2018. So it's had certain implications, politically, um, from a fiscal perspective, and I think, you know, to, to a certain degree within markets as well. I think what was what was fascinating to me was though, was to kind of uh, acknowledge those, but also see this different issue. And, you know, and I would go back, I, I'd done this podcast episode with Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, um, who's been phenomenal, her work around the SDGs in particular. Uh, um, she's a member of the elders and she does a lot of, uh, um, advocating, particularly around the STGs. But one of the themes that she constantly goes back to, and it's so intangible and abstract, it's hard to kind of um, really unpick it, um, I found until I had sort of this experience, was, was this, idea, uh, this issue of, uh, uh, of, of pride, of self-worth. And I think that's the thing that, I, 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 that really resonated with me when you find that, you know, you have families landing you know, on the beach of Lesbos, um, with, you know, a few bags or, or, you know, in, in the story that I wrote, uh, so you read a poem, but you know, there's another story I wrote for the London review of books, where I talk about the first death that happens on our boat. And this man who is just incredibly young, 
incredibly strong from somewhere I, we think Western or, or Central Africa. I just remember bright teeth, right? I mean, he was just in the, in the prime of his life and he ended up dying because he had spent, you know, 12 plus hours on the bottom of a boat, um, uh, ingesting and inhaling this toxic mix of, of fuel and salt water, um, which, which is, is quite acidic. So even his skin uh, uh, was, was peeling off in many places. And, you know, to kind of, I think, witness that, you know, and, this, and the fact and the kind of the handover that we ultimately did to a, an Irish warship, um, uh, surreally called the uh, Samuel Beckett, um, just a strange experience because, you know, we, we handed him over with nothing more than a piece of the paper, which were the coordinates of, you know, of where he passed away, you know, in, in not the middle of the, uh, of the Mediterranean, but, but obviously, you know, 20, 25 miles uh, north of Sabrata in, in, uh, in Libya. And, uh, but there was nothing more. There were no, you know, there, there, there were no familial, you know, kind of uh, uh, clues no, no shoes, nothing about his name for where he was from. It was just, it was sort of a, a strange experience to see these people trying to find a better life um, snuffed out and, and not even kind of a sense of remembering of them. And you and your group really bore witness to that. And I think that's something which comes through, which is that there was always an element when I hear you speak about that very human part to it you know we talk about finance and these markets and there's a lot of numbers on screens but ultimately it's hitting you know what economists like to say is the real economy which is people in the middle of the sea trying to make a better life for themselves and i was interested is that perhaps how sort of your poetry and your essay writing and your photography has kind of informed your work and life that it comes through this and a very human aspect, although we've ended up in finance and, and service like that. Does it inform that or does it work on a more parallel thread? No, 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 I, th I think it does inform that. It it's always interesting too, because I, I tend to think, uh, I'm very cognizant of voice in describing this, you know, either through the lens or through essays or, or through my poetry. And, uh, and I find that mine tends to be very um, impersonal. You know, it tends to be kind of a very neutral voice. Um, it's not confessional, for instance, um, you know, in, in, in describing those. Um, I'm actually working on an essay right now that, uh, uh, that, that kind of speaks to climate change over the long arc of my own family, which is sort of set against another crisis, uh, the, uh, uh, the Cold War crisis. My father was in the Air Force and we spent, you know, I spent most of my childhood on air force bases um, all across Europe, and and you know you just you you uh, there there are these certain kind of arcs or circles uh, of crises um, um, that, that that are always over the horizon. What else do you think poetry has taught you? Um, you know, I would I would uh, a degree of empathy. Um, I. I uh, certainly. I mean, th there's been uh, being able to connect um, to experiences, obviously, I'm not privy to, but to try and sort of understand um, uh, um, certain experiences, cultures, etc. Um, you know, as an outsider, uh, that's been particularly powerful. Um, I, you know, I would say sort of mechanically, too, I, I would say, you know, sort of the economy of language. 
uh, I, I think I, you know, I wonder if, if you're, you're sort of the same case, but I, you know, I, I, I tend to kind of value the, the economy of word. And I think that, that really kind of massive manifests itself in, in poetry where, you know, each word, each, uh, line break, um, you know, is sort of intentional, um, and, uh, um, uh, thoughtful, nothing is, or, or, uh, you know, rarely is it, you know, arbitrary or, or, um, ill thought out. No, I agree. And I think finance could do with more of that. In fact, that's kind of one of the other questions I have, which is there are many thinkers who've suggested that deep knowledge about arts or aspects, cultural is really related to a sign of good, call it human capital, uh, talent and, uh, the like of that. And I was wondering whether you think most hedge fund managers would, uh, believe that, or even fund managers in general. And, and do you think fund managers or may, maybe finance in general knows enough outside the world of finance i sometimes kind of think actually even some of the best investors are very curious about the world and kind of know quite a lot and over the last sort of few years i, I worry that it's got narrower and narrower and and now you've got people who are very good with spreadsheets but have, have lost that real economy or the human connection or just the understanding about how this how this happens so yeah i was just wondering about the effect of arts and culture or the wider thinking on whether you think uh, you know, finance people know enough about outside finance. I, I don't think they do. <laughs> I, I really, I, I completely agree. I, I don't think they do at all. Um, and, and I would say that for most of my life, I was probably in the same position. Uh, it's very easy to get comfortable around spreadsheets and looking at things analytically um, and, and to, you know, at the worst, have to risk adjust for, for, um, for certain positions, hedge fund roles, you know, et cetera, within, within your life. But, but you're, you're constantly looking and motivated by, you know, kind of the, the, the lights and noises of, of Bloomberg or, 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 you know, kind of, of markets. Uh, you know, I remember th this was actually a pretty profound decision for me in 2008, where you, you know, it, it felt like, it was increasingly obvious that the market was heading for reckoning. I mean, particularly in sort of early 08. And I ended up taking a few years out um, because I wanted to actually, per your point, kind of get, kind of understand the physicality of the world, the physicality of, of, of businesses or, you know, of other experiences outside of kind of sitting at a desk and, and making decisions and, and, and just speaking to, to managements, you know, at, at, uh, you know, at arm length. Uh, so, so that actually led me in 2008 to end up leaving and working for um, advising for a number of private equity funds and for the UK government and uh, really starting my path down sustainability. So I ended up working for something called the Commonwealth Business Council, uh, um, which is a, a, a Commonwealth UK government project. Um, they don't have their own balance sheet, but they're effectively coordinating uh, 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 finance around projects. It could be water, agriculture, you know, it, it, energy um, for, for many of the Commonwealth countries, in particular, um, uh, yeah, some of the big countries, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa areas, and then as well as India. 2008 onwards, uh, you kind of have a change of career partly, uh, and you go into kind of development finance and that type of area. Uh, what did you learn from that stage in your journey? Yeah, I, I felt... Uh, I learned that building a business uh, 
um, in my experience during that time, it was sort of building out uh, a business uh, um, uh, in water distribution and advising the UK government. But but it was incredibly hard. Um, you know, it was uh, um, very political in a sense. I you know, in order to kind of make things happen, you really had to kind of solve for a lot of different factors um, and personalities in many cases. Um, it was it was fascinating, uh, but also somewhat disheartening. I think over that time, what was interesting is, you know, with the backdrop of the global financial crisis happening, um, it, what to me was fascinating was you have this uh, a real showdown between um, different development theories, you know, the, the kind of Western theory, uh, which obviously Dembi Samoyo, which I'd interviewed, um, you know, in her book, um, uh, Dead Aid, talks about uh, is is very problematic. The fact that the West is is through aid, not necessarily kind of creating positive outcomes, but that juxtaposed to, you know, the, to the Chinese de development model, which was you know to kind of go into countries and and uh, vendor finance vast amounts of uh, a number of different projects um, and effectively outbid uh, others. Um, I, I thought you know it it was fascinating to kind of see those two compete um, and, and more often than not um, to see the the Chinese model um, win and, and actually have to kind of think through the um, you know the trade-offs in, in that because there certainly are to be frank. And then how did that evolve into becoming I guess uh, a fund manager hedge fund manager again and then into sustainability and responsible investing? Sure so I, I had I mean that period of of my life was uh, was one of great personal growth. I was reading a lot. I was exposed, particularly in, in politics or political theory, development theory. Um, I was exposed to a lot. That led me to really kind of reconsider where I wanted to go in life. Um, you know, at one point, I really wanted to head to and, and work for the IFC, um, which is the commercial part of the World Bank, uh, particularly with an uh, emerging markets kind of perspective. To do that, uh, the World Bank tends to be, um, and for good reason, but they tend to be pretty orthodox about sort of the hiring and, and um, insist on, you know, sort of a post-grad, you know, like a, a, a master's degree. So I ended up doing a master's at LSC with the attention of, of, of trying to find work at the IFC or another um, DFI. And uh, uh, I think along that way ended up rekindling conversations with with Man Group. Then it was GLG Partners. Man had, had uh, acquired it in 2011 or 2012, um, and I think there there was an opportunity to shift my focus from the long short side to the long only side, and kind of think about it a bit more constructively. I there was an opportunity to kind of rejoin. Um, uh, and kind of look at finance through climate strategies. So I was managing a climate strategy um, and I ended up launching a global sustainability uh, uh, long only strategy as well. And so me, so for me, that was, that was actually uh, pretty interesting. I mean, it's still very similar to that original goal, but, but obviously in a listed context. I often feel a bit of kind of dissonance between investing work and speaking with these companies. And then, you know, as we spoke about in the beginning, that real world, you know, we, migration crisis, climate crisis, uh, and all of those. Uh, do you feel that dissonance 
often and and how do you manage through that you know maybe bringing some more real world into you know expanding into i'm often speaking with peers maybe peers who are a little bit more how should i put it sort of skeptical about you know what we do in the real world or whether whether we should but when it when it actually hits them and when they hear these stories and things it, it does often jolt them into i think a slightly different nudge them onto a pathway where i think they then start to feel more fulfilled and more holistic around that but it, it kind of comes from this area of dissonance where i sometimes have to shut it off for a bit because it it, it almost feels i almost get a little paralyzed from it sometimes yeah. i mean do you feel this kind of dissonance and how do you work that through and, and what do you do with it well, well, first, I kind of want to throw it back to you. Can you give me an example where that's happened? Because this is interesting. I, I know what you're saying, but I kind of, I'm kind of curious and want to sort of tailor it to an example of your own. Sure. So I haven't had so much one on, say, climate recently, because I do a lot within healthcare. And ultimately in health, it's kind of really interesting, is that one way of thinking about it is you save a patient's life in some respect or extend their life. And actually the side effect of saving a patient's life, depending on how you do it, is profit for, for something else. But your primary effort is saving patients' lives and things. And then when you go through um, and you see you're in a hospital, or I had this when I was looking at some uh, robotics and you think, you know, you think about how many robotic surgeries done or things, and then you're there and then like, there's an emergency and, and someone's life is saved. And it's like, well, that is the real world impact of this thing and you get this right and more people will live longer and their lives will be saved and you misallocate the capital you don't understand what there's there's doing and they're just uh they're just widgets or, or numbers and it feels it feels less real and, and more divorced uh i feel the climate one is sometimes a, a little bit more distant than that but you do have and that's why i was kind of referring to the back because you had uh in the front the refugee crisis and someone right there on your boat which is connected to everything we're having. And I, I kind of feel that dissonance or sometimes is, uh, it's just interesting to see how that plays out. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think, I think it does. I, I, I know what you're saying. I think it was less apparent to me during the migrant crisis. Um, they, they seemed like two very distinct things. Um, whereas in the climate crisis, uh, because of, government policies because of you know, thematic investing, you know, they kind of conjoin where, where um, there, there, there's obviously not so much. And then I think it, it becomes sort of this bigger problem or this other problem of not so much, well, it's a different kind of dissonance. So for instance, I mean, the, the one, um, I forget, I'm a big fan of paradoxes, but there's, I, I, I think it's the Jevons paradox, but it's, uh, it might be the Jevons paradox, J-E-V-O-N-S, but it's this sort of paradox of, it's this efficiency paradox. Um, and you find that, you know, many thematic investors are always sort of talking about, you know, kind of efficiency metrics, you know, but the reality is when you look at kind of efficiency, particularly resource efficiency, it's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, you can kind of go back to the history of, of, uh, of 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 resource use around coal, right? And and you know the efficiencies around coal use, and it has you know all it's done is made coal, you know coal a more prevalent input, you know in economic activity, right? And so these you know we, we sort of uh, I, I you know th th these are the kind of these these uh, dualities of these kind of uh, dissonances that I kind of kind of struggle with in that you think that you're making progress around something around let's say and you know an efficiency issue 
but all you're doing is basically supporting the greater use of it, albeit at a more efficient metric. Yeah, so yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that is exactly the Jevons uh, is it? Paradox. Okay, good. <laughs> it is, you got it right. And coal is a prime example. Although the, the one I always think about is actually light. So we went from candles to light bulbs and we just exponentially increased our use of, of light yeah. because it, it, right. it was there. And so, and that's, uh, and that's what you see. And light, arguably, obviously there's an energy thing. You can kind of see it in a more uh, positive tone, but obviously coal has all of these other huge uh, uh, side effects on that. So you've become running long only sustainability fund. And then that kind of evolved into your current role, which is more strategy, oversight and policy and things like that. Um, I don't know, what, what have you learned from both and others and either the pros and cons? You know, is there some stuff you, you miss about that, that direct exposure to investing and you'd, you'd wish you'd known more about when you're an investor now that you know on the, on the policy side or, or vice versa? Uh, you know, I, I think, I mean, one thing I absolutely do miss is being able to go deep um, around stories around themes. I mean, sitting across, you know, three or four management teams within a sector and really trying to understand um, where the industry is heading. Uh, to me, that was that was really fulfilling. I think now, um, particularly at a policy level, you, you uh, uh, it's just it's a different kind of competency, frankly, uh, a different kind of skill set. So, you, so, so I do miss going deep. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, as a, as a portfolio manager, I, and this were, yeah, frankly, this was true both for the long short and the long only side. You know, it was also a different kind of pressure. I'm sure, I mean, you're familiar with it, right? You sort of wake up and, you know, if you're not doing well, you know, if you're sort of, um, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, if your PL is sort of running at a loss in a long short perspective, or if you're running, I don't know, Couple hundred basis points below benchmark, you know, in a long, long only format, there's a certain degree of just pressure, you know, and it's constant until you can fix that. But there's a certain degree of freedom in feeling that you can fix it, you can turn it around next month, you know, with a better idea, right? Uh, um, I, I think on the side I am now, particularly given the just dramatic reshaping from a regulatory perspective. Uh, um, uh, around sustainable finance, it, it's uh, it's it, it's a different kind of pressure. So it, it's not that um, that four a.m. waking up in the morning wondering what what you know what's what's going to happen next year, what firm you're going to work at, you know, if you if you end up getting fired. It, it's more trying to sort of juggle uh, 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 just this sort of stack of 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 applications, whether it's um, at a policy level, whether it's at a fund level, and that fund level can can take a whole number of different, you know, whether it's the the prospectuses, whether it's you know, kind of the investment framework around an element of SFDR, the, the EU Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, how that sort of fits with uh, some sort of disclosure regulation or, or or rule from an SEC, you know, from the SEC. I think it's 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 a it's a it's a different kind of problem solving, and a different kind of pressure. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And there's there's something great about markets and the investment side where you get relatively immediate feedback. And so even if you're not doing well, you can sort of yeah. see it and you can plot a path and you kind of have end results, whether you're looking at it annually or whatever time frame you're looking at and feedback. Whereas on the policy level, you're just constantly working. Yeah. 
very rarely do you get the ideal policy that you wanted because there's obviously a lot of other people and other things involved and it's kind of this long slow thing that you don't get uh, as much feedback which i think i would find in fact i do when i've dipped into it uh yeah. somewhat it, uh, somewhat yeah. frustrating and, and and if anything i would actually say that i i've just been surprised at how much more mired you are in sort of this this in you know interpretational swamp um swamp is probably unfair but you know think think about the notion of greenwashing, which a, a term that I don't tend to like very much um, because uh, many people are able to call out greenwashing, but what's the opposite of green? It's hard to sort of look at the inverse of it and call out what's great, what's good practice. And there's a lot of difference around greenwashing nonetheless. I mean, think about it in the European context. You know, the EU SFDR, the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, does uh, goes to great effort to, to kind of draw protections against greenwashing. That's a really, really good thing. I think what's problematizes that is then, you know, over this development, suddenly you have uh, national notions of what greenwashing is, you know, think uh, uh, France has its own ISR label, uh, Belgium has its own label towards sustainability. And, you know, in, in some, to, to a certain degree, these kind of run, not counter, but, but there are certainly more rigorous forms of it versus others. And there are, um, there are trade-offs you can make. There are ways that, that unfortunately, that I think asset managers can game. Um, no one wants to see bad behavior. I'm not certainly condoning it, but, but I think there are ways that um, some asset managers can kind of game this, particularly from a, a, a passive um, ETF kind of quant perspective. Uh, but yeah, it just, it, yeah, it, it's, I, I think it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, it, it's a bit, it, it's problematic. You know, it's, it, you know, what I expected would be more defined is actually much more interpretational. Yeah, much more slippery. I, I found this particularly yeah. looking at US, which has a very what we call literalistic view on legal or policy terms, and you fight over these meanings of individual words, which actually can pivot you in whole one direction or the other. And that's, you know, sometimes it, it misses the picture. And, and like you say, on this notion of greenwashing, it, it's obvious to everyone in the world you have, in, in fact, in legal terms, you had this idea of corporate puff, which is when a corporate says something, you just obviously can't believe them. I think the classic one is, you know, the advert with saying, you know, this is the best beer in the world or whatever, is like obviously can't be. And so I think there was a court case where someone, there, there was a litigation where someone said, we are the best something else in the world. And they said, oh, that sounded too similar. And I think the judge threw it out because he says, you're obviously neither the best anything in the world because it's corporate <laughs> puff. And so with greenwashing, there's, you know, there's, you're always going to want to look your, your best to some extent. And I think some instincts you, you want, you kind of want a little bit of that because you want people to, to ratchet upwards. And in which case you've got to try to show things in, in your good light for that. So I definitely, I definitely hear you on that. Okay, I thought maybe do a, a small section of kind of underrated or overrated uh, you can pass or you could say it's neutral or you could like dive into what uh what the kind of uh thing or the concept uh is uh if you like so underrated or overrated carbon tax uh underrated underrated Why absolutely that? underrated foundational uh, I mean, underpinning that all economists say right yeah look i i I, I mean, I, I agree, like, uh, uh, it sounds very reductionist, but we need to price on, tar uh, on carbon. I mean, whether it's uh, um, a, a, a 
tax price uh, adjustment. Yeah, uh, yeah, price exactly, right? Whatever. And, the, the we, we need thing. we need some way to like price that on a global level uh, that externality, and we don't have that. Sure. Um, it, you know, and 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 you know the I think it's uh, um, I think it's Article Six within the COP twenty six um, that's coming out. I, I could be mistaken, but I think it's Article Six. But it, that's it, that is the one problematic issue that's never been resolved over the last several cops, which is, um, you know, the Paris Accord really, really tried, made an effort to kind of create this, this international UN governed uh, uh, carbon market. And, and obviously, you know, the, the US has been, you know, a, a one of the big holdouts, but we've seen a tremendous amount of progress from China, from Korea, from Canada, from many other countries. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see, um, I, I'm not particularly uh, optimistic, you know, giving the, the, the mood in the US, but it'll be interesting to see if there's any progress made on that front at a COP26. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. If you look at economists, whether they're left or right, there's some huge agreement, like 80 or 90% of them think, you know, carbon tax, yeah. innovation, incentives. carbon tax. Incentives. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's kind of remarkable uh, on that. I think you had one lead sort of center, center progressive economist, Jason Furman, who said he thinks it's like 80, 85% of of the, the economic solution to this is, is within that because it sparks everything else. And okay. I think, and, and further to that, I think one of the unfortunate things is there was the uh, Baker-Schultz um, effort within the US. Uh, uh, oh, that was the carbon tax and dividend one. Yes, exactly. And, and that was um, quite well known because it was bipartisan. Unfortunately, Baker and Schultz now have both passed away. So, I mean, sadly, but, but I, I think that's the unfortunate part where that bipartisan effort, even within the U.S., is, is to some degree diminished. Yeah, I just it's a I mean I'm I'm veering more and more to it being a kind of what they would so call political economy problem so it's a problem of politics and I think particularly in the US if you look at the surveys like the Yale climate change survey one 30 to 35% of Americans do not believe in man my climate change and mm. so that's that's a big uh, that's a big chunk to deal with and therefore even a bipartisan carbon tax when like to whatever another way preserved as a, like elite technocratic solution and you're dealing with a 35 percent i mean you can you can gauge that but you know cross which doesn't really think that that's suitable is where for me there's that's an obvious logjam about trying to do do something there is, is and that's where yeah. we kind of got to i mean to, to to some degree not to keep going on this because it is such a fascinating issue but i wonder how much of it is is inevitable i.e um I, I forget the author that talked about this but you know when we think about political regimes and, and monetary regimes, uh, um, you know, think Bretton Woods, you know, the post-war Bretton Woods, you know, uh, uh, open markets, you know, liberal liberalism, that, you know, that, that project, what is in sort of this long wave of, of regime change, what happens next? And I think there was a really compelling theory to say that um, given the uh, financial existential, you know, kind of damage that, that, climate change represents that the next regime might well be a climate regime um, rather than, you know, kind of a Bretton Woods. So it sort of organizes itself around survival of climate change. And you get a whole different reordering of the values from the previous reg regime. Um, so certain values um, uh, for better, for worse, you know, are, are subordinated by just this imperative to survive climate change. Yeah, and I think you've seen, you know, in the long cycle of history, like 
you know, when slaves were made illegal or women got votes or, you know, go, going back and things, you do get this kind of, I guess it is kind of like the step change as a regime change. And suddenly you just really quite fundamentally change the rules uh, mm -hmm. in some house because society needs or wants to or for, for whatever reason. Uh, so I think that's possible. It's, it's interesting that the, the people I call the kind of crypto bros also think about it within that from crypto, uh, yeah. which we probably won't go into, but they, but part of their theory of change is that it's a regime change. So whether it ends up there or, or, yeah. or not, it does seem that it is quite a plausible uh, thing to happen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Next one. Underrated, overrated uh, divestment as a social political tool. I understand both sides very well. I do, you know, and, and I note there's a really good piece of research that came out called the impact of, in, of impact investing, which talks about the, uh, 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 the ineffectiveness of divestment relative to engagement. Yeah. That Although said, that was specifically only on cost of capital, which yes, I yes, think yes. is obviously an interesting lens to look at, yeah. at it. But would not the divestment people would not say that's necessarily their uh, transmission mechanism. But yeah. I won't necessarily but, go into an argument on that. But yes, please go on. But but I guess I, I'm a little bit more sympathetic, and I, I, you know, I've only looked at this in discrete ways. I think the one area that was incredibly compelling to me that I'd done a lot of work was to say, look, what are the discrete areas where there's been a lot of divestment? over the last five to seven years, one of those was tobacco. Tobacco was easy because it was sort of discrete businesses. You didn't have, you know, conglomerate businesses where, where it got kind of messy. And you could follow this shadow of divestment announcements um, from particularly asset owners, so not managers, not double counting. And so you had this sort of shadow of announcements. Um, and so what I ended up doing was kind of going out and really trying to track uh, several years ago, but sort of the, you know, kind of the AUM for those asset owners, and then trying to kind of back into what that meant. And you found there were a few data points, um, um, public and uh, um, um, uh, effectively public, where, where you could sort of back into the implied investment or, or kind of a range. So if you took an asset owner's total investment, you found that um, out of their total assets, roughly around anywhere from 0.25% to as much as 1% of that was invested in tobacco. And that was dependent on, you know, if you were UK or US where tobacco was a big, you know, part of the, as a constituent of the, of the benchmarks, you tended to be up on the bigger part of that. If you were say Australia, where you, you, don't have a tobacco constituent in the ASX. It was it was on the lower end of that, but you had sort of a spectrum. And I think what was interesting was you could sort of sensitize that um, against these flows. And I got to a figure that was you know, somewhere between fifty and sixty billion of outflows relative to at least when I did it. So I have not rerun these numbers um, to the market cap of global tobacco. Um, there's an MSCI tobacco index, and that index is roughly around 350 to 380 billion. So, you know, 60 out of three, call it 350, 370, you know, 60 it is meaningful, right? I mean, that's a that's a kind of a big sucking noise. And I think what you could make is an argument in this case that, you know, with this kind of sustained outflows, you would you might see a structural derating relative to the market. That's not to say that, you know, in a risk-off 
uh, market suddenly tobacco outperforms. It probably would, right? It just wouldn't sustain that outperformance. And so then you had these sort of arguments, I think of, of I think, you know, you've actually seen this with coal right now from, from, from hedge funds, but this idea that, you know, as people divest, it just, you know, the expected returns are, you know, too enticing for particularly hedge funds not to get involved, right? But, you know, expected returns are kind of a tricky thing, right? Expected returns are not realized returns. Expected returns are the sum of expected returns plus unexpected returns equals realized returns. And I think what people forget is what is in the unexpected return element, right? And if, you know, and I would say that, that the, the impact of negative of outflows uh, from divestment, you know, could be in some cases, and I would point to tobacco, pretty meaningful and would sort of rebase the, uh, uh, the, uh, the expected, you know, kind of element. So, yeah. you know, expected, it's unrealized, right? Yeah. I mean, exactly. does that make sense? Well, yeah, no, that does, uh, uh, pretty sophisticated argument, but I, I buy into that. I'm also very suspicious of, like some of these hedge funds, are not, uh, long story short, the commodity price has gone up a lot in an unexpected way. That is actually not that connected to divestment either way, like harking back to that uh, end paper. So it's not particularly that, you know, that they've seen something go on and uh, some people divest it and they bought it. But when your underlying commodity price has gone up 600% mm. in a few months, whether that's iron or whatever, that's a huge, as you put it, unexpected mm. return. It's really divorced from this other mechanism. Uh, so I feel that that's kind of very uh, financially unsophisticated for some of those hedge funds to claim that, which in this case means that actually they're just kind of maybe skillful or lucky traders or traders rather than something about what's the transmission mechanisms of what's really yeah. happening there. So yeah. that then the opposite side, underrated or overrated, uh, or commentary on uh, shareholder activism as a theory of change. Yeah, I, I think it's it's massive. Well, I, I don't think it's fair to call it underrated because I think people, uh, uh, I, I do, to be clear, I do think it's under, uh, underrated. Uh, I'm a huge proponent of it. Um, and I'll give you some of my background. Um, I, I think, just my own experience from the firm that I work at, man, I mean, we have not, uh, you know, we, we have, when it comes to stewardship, we've, we've always sort of tried to kind of struggle with two issues. One, how, you know, a big part of the firm is quant. And so while we do a lot of systematic voting, that's fine. And you can sort of recalibrate that however you want, you know, I, you know, kind of a, a more greenish chief flavor versus a vanilla flavor. Um, you're never really engaging with companies, you know, particularly around uh, among that, that amount of breadth within a given portfolio. On the discretionary side, you run into issues that are very different. So you run into the alternative problem. So um, you have depth, you don't have breadth. So you're engaging a lot. The question is, to what degree are you voting? Um, and that is somewhat contingent on your mix of ordinary shares versus synthetics, i.e. Um, um, CFDs, contracts for differences, or swaps. Swaps. And so when you um, own those synthetics, um, there's certain advantages, uh, particularly around you know transaction costs, friction, uh, uh, because you're basically you're not owning the ord, you're owning a contract through your prime broker. Um, it comes at a lower cost. So, you know, it, it's, it's performance enhancing. And more importantly, it allows you, and this is important for hedge funds, you're borrowing at margin. 
So it allows you to lever up and that's how you accomplish levered returns. Uh, the problem is when you engage in those kinds of contracts, you forfeit your, your right to vote. Uh, um, so you lose voting rights. So kind of different problems on different sides of the businesses. I think for, for context, I, and I think what where we have, and in particular, I've spent a lot of time um, helping develop the team on this is, you know, how, how do we, how do we actually to, to get a, to, to kind of compensate for these problems? I would say that you've got to increasingly build better, stronger stewardship capabilities at the firm level and not speak at an underlying subgroup level or at a fund level. Um, and so that's what we've gone about doing uh, to the point that, you know, in our 238 year history, I like to point out that, you know, this year was the first time where we ended up voting or filing on our, our, our sorry, this year was the first time in our 238 year history where we co-filed on a climate shareholder resolution with HSBC, which I think actually turned out very well. We worked you know, via 15 other investors in share action who I could not have stronger uh, uh, thoughts uh, and support for, uh, but, but you know, kind of, uh, working constructively with the board and management uh, to effectively level up uh, or upsize their, their net zero uh, uh, commitments. So to basically turn what was a, a an ambiguous um, ambition 12 months ago that lacked a lot of, uh, of flesh, a lot of like real detail into something that was a hardened commitment. I do think ling language matters around this uh, uh, into a commitment um, where, where that was time bound in terms of, you know, phase outs around fossil fuels, coal, et cetera. And you got mostly what you wanted and withdrew the filing. So was yes, kind yeah. of like an ultimate win, right? Yeah. So, the, I mean, the, the question is to what degree was that? Uh, we've talked about this before. To what degree was this an anomaly? Um, or does it sort of represent kind of, you know, a change, a shift? Um, you know, I know there, there have been others, obviously, with, with investors uh, uh, working on, on, reach, uh, on changing the board composition for Exxon. But it does feel like, uh, you know, since, since, the emergence of PRI, you know, and kind of coordination in what was generally a pretty atomistic, you know, kind of system of financial players. There's a lot more, there's a lot greater coordination uh, in advancing, you know, progressive, you know, ESG uh, uh, policies. Great. And then overrated, underrated, or comments on carbon offsets. Yeah, this is a super, super, super uh, controversial one. So, so I want to be very careful. Can you re re restate the language of the question? So, oh, okay. So I've just put carbon offsets as a, as a word out, not thinking okay. too deeply. Okay. But it would be um, so. I guess there's two angles you could think about: is is, is using uh, carbon credits or offsets in uh, you know the ones you can buy in the market to decarbonize. Uh, portfolios or, or, or operations so you could comment on all of that and i guess the controversy is that uh, some of those offsets have not been seen to maybe be as uh, re reliable as we thought and then the other counter argument that that is not having such a real economy effect in terms of actually getting people to reduce things on the other hand other people would argue that if you are doing additional uh, projects and stuff which are, which are helping then that is something that is worth uh investing on so you could take either side or not on yeah. on that but the idea is uh you know are we overrating underrating I, I can start is my i guess i have 
uh, lowered. Uh, so I still think they're helpful, but I'm probably less convinced about them now than maybe I was uh, five years ago. And either that was five years ago, I was a little bit more naive or, uh, or today, um, uh, you know, or today, you know, it's come to truth on, on some of those. Um, except I do see some projects in the kind of, uh, I guess you'd call it maybe even negative emissions or very, what is actually quite high prices, but quite, uh, and we don't know whether they'll work, but which look quite interesting. And I do feel that we should probably, um, you know, still incentivize and try some of those. You don't want to put people off, you know, like Stripe and their negative emissions. You kind of want them to, to try it out. So yeah, carbon offsets, thoughts. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to maybe controversially say that they are underrated. Mm -hmm. I get the criticism. I, I get the criticism. I, 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 um, I, I think the, the question or the debate needs to be more reframed, right? It's not whether um, we should be using carbon offsets in the abstract, but how do we actually start using a better, higher quality version of, of offsets? How do we sort of move from avoidance to, to, to genuine removal, you know, technology, nature-based solutions? Um, you know, the, the reason I say it, 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 this is so controversial is, and I've seen, you know, the IAGCC has the investor framework where they um, recommend against using offsets. You know, it, it has been widely kind of recommended against by a number of NGOs. Um, I think the thing that I struggle with is that runs counter to all the policy signals that I see sort of coming out. So, you know, you mentioned uh, a sustainable future. My podcast, I had chairman, acting chairman, uh, Rostin Benham of the US CFTC, the Commodities Futures and Trading Commission. So the sister of the SEC uh, and, you know, commodities, um, you know, carbon, uh, carbon is a commodity, right? And, and I, I think they have an interest um, in developing bigger, higher quality carbon offsets markets. And, and that's, that's, that's key, right? I mean, how do you kind of create things that are uh, more authentic or higher quality and, and specifically removal-based? I had another conversation with Elizabeth Imrema, who's the executive secretary of the Convention on Biological Diversity the, uh, for, for the United Nations. And I think from a biological or biodiversity perspective, I think it was interesting because I asked this question as well. And I think, I, you know, I sense she did not say it's overtly or explicitly, but I definitely got the sense that, you know, um, you know, th there was an, th there should be, or maybe an opening for offsets. And to some degree there, they already are, um, but, but, but to explicitly solve the biodiversity issue, you know, the, the, the funding problem there. So, so I would say it seems naive to kind of throw them out when policy signals seem to say this is going to be a bigger part. Um, I do, uh, uh, you know, I, I read a really interesting Barclays research report yesterday that talked about offsets markets growing from 500 million um, annually today to 250 billion by 2030 and to 1 trillion annually by 2050. And so I, I think, you know, it, it just, it, it feels like, um, this can be a constructive source of offsetting. It shouldn't be some dispensation, dispens, dispensation to say, I can, you know, emit all I want, but I'm just going to use offsets, but it can be a powerful tool to take care of. I mean, certainly the residual that, that, that we can't, um, genuinely remove towards the tail end, but it feels like there's a use case over the next 10 to 15 years in this transition. Microsoft is a great example of this, where they talk about, you know, their kind of journey from 2010, where they widely used, uh, um, 
uh, uh, avoidance offsets have transitioned now to uh, removal offsets and are heavily using those to get to carbon negative by 2030. Uh, I think the, the, the interesting part, and I, I remember um, listening to a podcast uh, with Lucas Jopa, their chief environmental officer, but I found it really interesting where, you know, kind of one of their big problems, and they've been the most, one of the most progressive around this area, is effectively just trying to find the liquidity in high quality offsets. Um, so that's the thing we should be solving for. I mean, you know, I think uh, I, I, I don't want to get these numbers wrong, but I, I do recall them in the market trying to buy, uh, you know, something like one or, you know, greater than 1 million tons of offsets. And the market was only 1.3 or 1.4 million tons. I mean, effectively, they were buying the market for offsets, you know, in these high quality offsets. Um, and, and if that's the case, you know, how do we, how do we, grow that market and try and remove as, as, as much as possible. But, you know, not to go on on this, but I, I think there's also another, not perfidious, but there's this sort of strain too in the long short area where, uh, where, where a number of managers are trying to make the case that, you know, shorting can support your path towards net zero. Um, you know, in my mind, those are completely distinct, right? Yeah. I mean, there's Shorting. a big paper from AQR. I think even Cliff Asnes might have uh, yeah, yeah, written it, yeah. uh, talking about this. If people want to see that side of the argument, yeah. But the short book is that issue with it being where the real economy is. But you you can get to a finance portfolio where it, it looks net zero. Yeah. So yeah, your thoughts? You know, I, I think, I mean, we're conf we're conflating a, a couple different things because I think what they're trying to do is. Uh, address it from a carbon accounting perspective. Mm -hmm. But look, I mean, the point of net zero, despite problematic the, that it's called net zero, i.e. taking your gross emissions and netting them with offsets is, you know, ultimately you're trying to take offsets or you're trying to take emissions out of the uh, atmosphere, right? Shorting, at least in my mind, doesn't do that. You know, nature-based offsets, um, you know, technology solutions would do that as, as, as genuine, genuine offsets. Um, so, so I, I don't personally, I don't buy that argument that, that, that shorting actually would, would sort of solve the, the big problem that we're trying to kind of address. I think that, that's not to say it's not useful. I do think that expressing your fund in a net, you know, kind of emissions basis has its values. I mean, look, if I were an investor in a long short fund um, and I really cared about climate first, I'd want to see to what degree is, you know, how, how are they kind of addressing the, the big problem of, you know, kind of managing emissions, right? And that's on the gross long basis. But I'm also, as an investor in the fund, I'm, I'd be naturally interested in my economic exposure, i.e. if there's a carbon shock, you know, if, if you see, you know, ETS or carbon allowances up X amount, what would, what, what would be the impact on my portfolio, right? And so I think that, that net figure can supplement in terms of the economic exposure uh, alongside it. So it's not without its uses, but I, I think it's wrong to uh, play uh, uh, to, to 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 switch them. Yeah. So that's a pretty sophisticated answer. Probably the most sophisticated uh, I've heard. So that's great. And so it is not. It's we want better projects, not to throw out all of the projects. There's the biodiversity angle which I've heard few people talk about, but I think could be quite important, uh, particularly when you think about it. And then actually this loops back to the very first things we were saying, 
whether you're having a real economy impact or thinking, you know, where nature-based offset uh, or, you know, technology might be doing something as opposed to pure carbon accounting, which might have its place, but is a, is a different thing and you don't want to conflate uh, the two. Uh, so yeah, really well articulated. Um, a couple more on the overrated, underrated. We're getting quite a lot out of these ones is, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, sustainable finance regulation. I guess people are thinking particularly SFDR, but then we have got, uh, you know, UK has just come out with a load. SDR. You've got, uh, yes, SDR. They've all got, they all sound very <laughs> similar. <laughs> You've had corporate governance codes, dealership codes, I guess, and things like, uh, uh, and things like that. Um, I guess uh, critics uh, tend to, what do they argue? Um, Over-prescriptive, you know, if you've got this sort of taxonomy, you can't go from dark brown to light brown. Uh, maybe that's too restrictive and you've got all of these different nationalistic ones, which actually uh, you refer to. On the other hand, uh, you know, what do you do about the fact that you have no standards, nowhere to start, uh, also protecting uh, the real Intel investor, but also drained to funnel money into roughly the right buckets of area. And arguably there has been a kind of uh, market uh, failure because there hasn't been enough done, in which case, well, then you you need more regulation, I guess, are two sides of that. So, and, you know, any thoughts on sustainable finance regulation? You think it's overrated, underrated, or just some comments? Yeah, I, I'm going to say it's it's massively underrated. Uh, ma massively and not not to say it's um, the panacea I think it's it's going to probably get worse like worse is interpretationally but before it gets better I, I think uh, um, the EU SFDR has been incredibly helpful for at least making an effort to address these difficult questions you know I, I think um, you know and I, I actually found it interesting that that Commissioner Allison Heron Lee on, on my podcast mentioned this as well um, that that you know, look, there's a place for principles-based approaches. I think um, in this space, they tend to be too abstract, too broadly interpreted. Um, it feels like we are increasingly headed to something more, it, it, as, a, as a matter of necessity, prescriptive, um, particularly in, in terms of, of defining um, protections against greenwashing, right? I mean, we've got to define what greenwashing is. We've got, you know, and I, and I think... One thing that has been uh, probably overlooked, but where the US FDR has been incredibly helpful is sort of in, just introducing, introducing this contractual legalistic term, you know, binding, right? So, so I think, um, you know, in, in sort of my day doing ESG, I think I was always a little bit uh, uh, offended by other PMs that were trying to do it, but were doing it on an ad hoc basis, right? Like when it made sense, you know, they do it, but but not really, not systematically. Uh, and I think where the EU comes in is, I mean, they they want something that is systematic, that is that is, you know, it's 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 a binding term uh, um, that you're measured by. So you are, um, you know, the attributes of your portfolio, you know, uh, um, are determined by you know a certain kind of process, or you're doing this to your investment universe, which reshapes your portfolio in certain ways, you know, and this is something that, uh, again, is, is binding. So, so I think that's powerful. I think what's interesting in my mind, though, is, is just these, these issues that still need to be reconciled, which is, um, you know, th th this question around um, disclosure, and I think the, 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 the the we we want better disclosure but how do you make it happen the eu has has sort of there have been critics for it i actually applaud their decision i think it was uh 
pragmatic and actually quite effective, but how do you solve for getting better disclosure among all companies, not just companies with more than 500 employees? Um, it's hard to kind of go to them and, and, and put a big reporting, you know, kind of burden on them, uh, just giving, you know, costs, uh, um, resources, et cetera. One way of doing that is kind of creating, you know, these layers of legislation, but also attacking the investors. So getting the investors to actually drive that. So they've kind of inverted, you know, this, the disclosure cycle. So they've gone to investors first, placing pressures on investors and those investors then will place uh, uh, a lot of pressure on the underlying companies. Um, it, it'll be interesting in the U S where, uh, Again, I, you know, I think that they want to follow a much more linear path. So they want to go to the investors. I mean, sorry. So they want to go to the companies, improve disclosure, and ultimately sort of uh, have that lead to better disclosure at the product level. Um, you know, the, the other issue too is this sort of question of, of materiality and kind of what, what it represents. I think, um, you know, as I talked about in that podcast, one of the things that has been interesting to me is, um, and I know that you've read some of this stuff, but when you look at the... Uh, 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 the speeches and statements coming out of the SEC, and the SEC is composed of five commissioners. Um, they, you know, it, the balance of it tends to change per political cycle. So now it's it's Democrat heavy, but you find a lot of big philosophical, even ideological differences around, you know, principles based, you know, more lenient or more prescriptive, um, you know, and and uh, and views around things like materiality in particular. Um, so we're watching that happen right now. Um, you know, uh, and there, there's certainly some antagonist, not antagonistic, but there certainly some differing opinions between, uh, uh, commissioners, particularly commissioner Pierce, uh, and, and commissioner Lee in, in terms of how to kind of calibrate this in the EU process. A lot of that stuff was bureaucratically set. So we never really got to see a lot of it. Right, so I think it's it's been sort of interesting to kind of see the the teething pains of of that legislation uh, uh, from an EU perspective, but effectively the uh, the seeds you know uh, of it um, uh, from a US perspective you know uh, start to work out. Yeah, that's fascinating. I and I think you just articulated the case for regulation better than I've ever heard a regulator articulate it so <laughs> okay. uh, they could uh, they could deal with some of that um okay last couple on this one um oh actually and i should tell everyone if you want to hear more about that do really check out uh, jason's uh podcast with the sec commissioner on that that's a really uh, fascinating one um stakeholder capitalism underrated overrated or any comments yeah it's you know i i feel like it's unfair to say it's underrated uh Maybe because that's in the circle I think that you and I are in. I mean, we we kind of um, Alex Edmonds or 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 Paul Pullman or others speak so widely about that. I mean, perhaps it's a European kind of UK thing that's really. Uh, uh, yeah, I feel I, I would I guess I would still call it underrated, but I feel like it's really starting to hit the mainstream. I, I think if I were a U.S. investor, I would probably. Uh, take a differing view because it, it, it's still much of a of shareholder kind of uh, centric kind of perspective over there. Sure. What's a recent favorite podcast you've done or one that you learned the most? Obviously, we had one with the SEC commissioner, which uh, obviously was really recent and really fascinating. But uh, any others over the, uh, over the time you've done it that you thought, oh, I really learned a lot from that one? 
Yeah, I, you know, so too, I mean, one of my recent favorite ones was with Chris Stark, the uh, mm. CEO of the Climate Change Committee, uh, who is the independent advisor to the UK on their uh, net zero plan and, and uh, the work around it. And so I think it was refreshing, um, particularly some of the questions around how the role of the Climate Change Committee is changing a little bit. I, they're having to become more of a moderating voice um, for the boosterism of, of, the, uh, uh, of the Boris Johnson sort of a, a cabinet, you know, the, the, and, and more of a kind of a factual check against some of the UK's claims. Um, they, they are actually working on a, a new report for the recent uh, um, Treasury uh, uh, report that just came out. So it'll be interesting to hear from that. I think th there've been a whole bunch of really interesting episodes. I mean, one, one that actually surprised me, and this happened several years ago, quite unexpectedly, was, uh, was when I interviewed the CEO of a Spanish bank. Um, and this, so this was probably about two and a half, three years ago. Yeah, Spain, and, and that is changing, but, but at least several years ago, they were kind of seen as a laggard, you know, in terms of the uh, um, uh, ESG momentum across Europe, certainly behind, you know, the, the Dutch, you know, uh, Nordic countries, um, and, and Belgian and French. And so I wasn't quite sure what to expect. I knew that he had a very, you know, a kind of keen interest in this. And so we, we started the interview and, uh, you know, it was clear he actually knew as a, despite, you know, as a CEO, he, he knew actually quite a lot, particularly around climate. And I made a quick remark about that, you know, on the, on the, on the tape. I said, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised um, that you're so conversant uh, and articulate around kind of climate risk. And he looked at me, and this is in a room full of four or five other very senior people. And he looked at me incredulously for like seconds, uncomfortably. He looked at me and he said, why? And, and I, and I kind of stammered and he said, Barcelona, and this is, this is, this was in Barcelona. Barcelona is, you know, X, you know, X meters below sea level. We will be one of the first victims of climate change. And it was just, it was kind of unexpected. This realization that like for you know, certain cities like Barcelona, for instance, that this um, was actually really striking home in a real sense, not in a kind of a conceptual research report sense, and that and that people were having to kind of plan around it, um, their businesses or their lives, maybe. Uh, I thought that was that was really really interesting. Yeah, that was really real. Cool. And last two questions. Then one is, what do you wish people understood? more about the world or is there something that you think you really understand and that people haven't quite got yeah you know i i, I would actually have to go back to you know we, we began this episode talking about that uh the work around the migrant crisis um and in particular and i i sort of misstated the word but um you know i mentioned mary robinson the the former president of ireland and her work around the sdgs and and her empathy for for migrants, refugees, you know, uh, 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 and so I use pride. It was, it's not just pride. It's this idea of dignity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the exact word that she used. And that is the exact word that I sort of independently on that boat. Um, and, you know, across, across my experiences, um, of which I hope to do more, 
kind of realized, which was just very, very different from our working environment. I mean, we, we talk about, I mean, we, we, you know, dignity has um, a lot of different connotations, you know, in the work environment, you know, you, you want a safe, good working environment, you know, no matter what. I, I think in, in, a, um, in a situation where people, you know, are voluntary or involuntary migrants, um, you know, they've given up a lot and, you know, sacrificed a lot, they don't have a lot, um, you know, the, the, the little things they have, you know, dignity is actually a very large part of that, right? And it was something that I was very, very, very sensitive to on that boat that, that particularly some of the families I'd seen that, that had kind of forfeited pretty much everything, um, you know, that, that, treating them with dignity um, and speaking to them, um, it meant it meant a lot. Yeah, be kind, have dignity. Yeah, great. And last question is: uh, Do you have any advice for people listening? This could be advice for young people who want to be activists. Some people thinking about finance as a career. Somebody who might want to think about being a poet or a poet and an investor. Um, yeah, any advice for people? Yeah, so so my favorite piece of advice that that I've uh, that a mentor had told me once was, uh, "No, doesn't mean never." And yeah, I, I was gonna, uh, um, you know, I, I've got boxes twenty or thirty years ago when I was sort of a, a kind of a struggling poet, you know, at, at university and thinking about getting a master of fine arts, where I was sending self addressed self addressed stamped envelopes with you know five to eight poems to every literary journal in the US and, and abroad and, and effectively getting 95% rejection receipts back. Um, you know, I kind of, I, I felt, you know, I, I feel like that was fortifying um, in, in a sense. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of sort of talk about, you know, uh, 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 failure porn, you know, this idea of, of, of using it to fortify, but I'm a big believer in this, um, um, you know, if you keep trying around areas, you should not accept no as sort of this this final uh, determinant um, for, for what you want to do. Yeah, that's a really good piece. Uh, no does not mean never. So with that, Jason Mitchell, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. If you appreciate the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast.